All right. So Hebrews 8, 1 through 13, we're going to kind of compare these covenants. And uh, just so that people listening can also hear that uh, if you want to hear more, you can go to patreon.com, creation instruction. All right, and you can get more there. Anyway, Hebrews 8, verse 1 says this. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. So, we've talked about this before, but year after year, the high priest would never sit down. He had a job to do. He would go in. There were no chairs in the tabernacle because he was going to be doing the sacrificing, the offering of the sacrifice, all of these kinds of things. Well, here we see we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Just echoing what, what Yeshua said on the cross, it is finished. That our high priest didn't have to go in year after year. He went in once for all, and there is no more need for sacrifice for sins. It's done. Okay? Now, also, he's calling this their temple that they know of, the, the, the temple that's built by Herod there at this time. He's saying that's not the true temple. He says he's a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected. Now, again, you want to get stoned, go to the temple, you know, back in those days and say this isn't the true temple. That would have been like blasphemy you're going to definitely be waking some people up saying that. And so this one he's saying was not made by the hands of men, but this is the Lord's temple. Well, spoiler alert, I think we know that Yeshua, Jesus, offered himself. And there was not a single Levitical priesthood from the line of Aaron that ever did anything like that. So he's basically opening up in this chapter, we're going to be comparing the new temple, to the old temple. Well, our old temple, but to them, it was the one that was standing at that time. Okay? So, verse 4 continues, For if, we, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So, a lot here. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. In this earthly temple that you guys know about, but he says this is a copy, a shadow of the things that are in heaven. Because this is why Moses was instructed, when you make that tabernacle, you'd see to it that you do everything that I told you, everything that you saw on the mountain. Because most Christians today, when they think of Moses coming down the mountain, they think he brought down the law, and that's it. 
But we see here that he also brought back the blueprints of the tabernacle. That was a picture of what? Heaven, the gospel. And so, again, when the church likes to dissect this and say, okay, Old Testament law, New Testament gospel, I like to say you're wrong. Old Testament law and gospel. You see, within the law, the gospel was there. He brought both down from the mountain. Today, we like to separate that law from the gospel and say, hey, Jesus loves you, that's all there is. There is no need to obey the law anymore. There's no need to even know the law. The law is null, it's void, it's obsolete. Wrong. That is not the Bible. That is church culture, but that's not the Bible. So this is extremely important to see this. Now, it says, he has obtained a more excellent ministry. So what could be more excellent than the temple? There, in a Jew's mind, nothing. I mean, take their home, they'd be fine with it. Destroy the temple, they're going to be weeping. There was nothing more important to a Jew than that temple. Likewise, there should be nothing more important to us today than our temple, the new temple. And this kind of goes back to what we were just talking about before we began. We shouldn't be fearing about our house. We should be fearing about the temple. Those are the things that our focus should be on. The, the temple of others, too, to share the gospel that others don't end up going to hell when the judge comes. So, I'm going to give those Jews some credibility, I guess, or some kudos to, to having that kind of spiritual focus, even though it may have been off a little bit. They at least knew the temple. God's presence, that's what counted. Okay? Now, it says here also there in verse 4, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. There's another big reason he wouldn't be a priest. The biggest reason of all. He wasn't from the line of Aaron. You couldn't be a priest. Remember we talked about that a few weeks ago, that if you were from Aaron, or not from Aaron, I should say, and you were a priest, that was worthy of stoning. You were dead. It was that big of a deal. So these priests of Aaron that the Jews of this time know about, they're serving at a copy. It's not the real, authentic temple that Jesus, Yeshua, is talking about. That's up in heaven. Now, we have become the temple we are now the most holy place in which the Spirit dwells in. But even that is not the final product. The final product is going to be after he comes back. Verse 6, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So he's going to now start shifting from the temple 
to the covenant of which the temple was basically all about. He's going on to say that not only has the law been changed, which is going to rock their world, but that there's a new mediator and a new covenant. So imagine, put yourself being a first century Christian or first century Jew at this time, and now they're just saying, hey, the law has changed. The temple isn't the real temple. We've got a new mediator, not these high priests over here. And there's a new covenant. They aren't going to be listening to you any more than what people want to listen to the gospel for us from, from us today. Okay? They've made up their minds. And so this is, I, I don't even think we can really grasp the hurdle this is for the author of Hebrews to get this point across back then. Anyway, he's saying, Aaron and Moses, you step aside because there's a new sheriff in town and his name is Yeshua, the Lord saves. Okay, this writer of Hebrews it was either nuts or had some pretty big guts to, to uh, be saying these kinds of things. Hebrews 8 verse 7 says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Now notice here, he calls it first the first covenant. And then this new covenant he said was coming, he calls a second covenant. Now I think that's important because he doesn't call it old yet. He will later, but he doesn't call it old. I think showing us that it's not obsolete, it's not gone it was the first one, and now there's a second. Let me give you an example why I think this might be brought up, because in a Jewish mind, there was kind of an understanding of a first and a second, the youngest and the oldest type thing, or the youngest and then the next. Cain and Abel. We see Abel was Adam and Eve's second son. The first son, Cain, was set aside. He, he, didn't, he wasn't the chosen one, you might say. We can go on to look at Abraham and Isaac. Okay, Abraham, Isaac was not the oldest son. Ishmael was. But Ishmael, the first one, is set aside so that the second one gets all the glory. Just like Abel got all the glory. Jacob and Esau. Esau is the oldest son, the first, but the second, Jacob, is the one that gets all the glory. This idea was within the mindset of a Jew. And so when he's saying the first has been uh, basically set aside, that it had fault in it, for a Jew, this would have kind of connected to their way of thinking. And he's saying, if the first one would have been faultless, just like had Cain not been an idiot, if Ishmael, you know, had been godly, if Esau wouldn't have sold his birthright, you know, all of these kinds of things, then there wouldn't have been a need for the second. But there is a need because the first one was flawed. 1 Corinthians 15, 47 says, The first man was of the earth. 
made of dust. That's Adam. The second man is the Lord from heaven. The second Adam. See the way they think? And this is what he's saying. There was a first Adam, a second Adam. If the first Adam hadn't had been faultless, there wouldn't have been a need. But the fact is, the first Adam was uh, filled with flaws, and there was a need for the second. So, verse 8 says, because finding fault with them. Now, who's the them here? It's not the covenant, it is the people. Finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So now, the author here of Hebrews is taking them to the, to the Old Testament, to the Tanakh, and they're saying, he's quoting Jeremiah 31. So he's told them, look, there's going to be a new covenant, a new mediator, a new law. All these things are, are going to be different. And they're like, oh, I'm going to stone you. And then he's saying, hey, Jeremiah 31 says. And they're like, oh, yeah. We talked about this, I think it was last week, that God has the right to change things, but he will not do so unless he's given you a hint already in Scripture that he was going to do it. And so all Paul is doing here, if Paul is indeed the writer, I think he probably is of Hebrews, but is he's taking them back to the Old Testament and showing you those nuggets that this isn't out of the blue. This is something that is in Scripture, saying that there would be a new covenant. So quoting the voice of the Lord. Now, it says what the law uh, well, first, let me back up here. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. That word make is also the exact same word cut. Okay, cut a covenant. So, when we read about that in Genesis, when God cut a covenant in the Hebrew, or in use, use the Septuagint version of the Hebrew Bible, in the Greek, it's the exact same word that we see here in Hebrews. So just as the old covenant had to come in with the bloody covenant, cutting the animals in half and so on, the new had to be a bloody covenant. This is why Jesus had to die on the cross. Because there could be no forgiveness without blood. And yet today we see many churches, if I even can call them that, who are denying the power of the blood of Jesus. Okay, uh, a lot of big names that you would know have that theology today. That the blood of Jesus really didn't do anything. No, it's, it's everything in the old and the new. So, notice he says I'm making a new covenant. I've highlighted that word new because there is a belief out there that we are now in a renewed covenant. And I do not believe it's a renewed covenant. It is a brand new covenant. Now, that may seem kind of odd for most of you, but it's typically in the Hebrew root movements that we're hearing about a renewed covenant. Now, I'm going to explain why I don't believe it's renewed, but I understand why that theory is out there is because the church has kind of said, okay, you've got this old thing, now we've got this brand new thing where the old is thrown away. It's gone. 
and therefore to say it's renewed kind of allows them to keep that in there. Well, I agree to some extent of that, but I don't think that's what Scripture is saying. I think Scripture says it better by calling it a new covenant and not but yet still keep the same point of believing in a renewed covenant. I'll explain that as we go. Romans 8.3 For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So, the law was flawed. Just like the first that we see throughout, there were problems with it. If it wasn't flawed, there would not be a need for a different one. And so it was weak. Why? Because of the flesh. Now, if you're taking notes, underline that on that verse. Flesh. It was weak, not because the law itself was bad. What was weak? The flesh. The law could not do what it was intended to do because of the flesh. So it wasn't the fault of the law, it was the fault of the hearers of the law. Does that make sense? So that word flesh is extremely important. As we go on to verse 9, Not according to the covenant that I made with their forefathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Again, was it a fault of the covenant? No, it was the fault of the they. They did not remain faithful to God's covenant. God was faithful, but we were not. And guys, that's the same thing I believe with today when we talk about that once saved, always saved doctrine. God is always going to be faithful. He will not abandon his promise to you. But you can walk away from that covenant. Anyway, many in the church today, like I said, say that we are under a new covenant and Therefore, the law is no longer applicable. What's happened is that pendulum has swung so far to that other direction that we have become, as we've talked about many times, this, this cheap grace kind of church where the law is gone. And there are those then who swing it so far to the other end and basically say that we have to obey the law to be Christians, that we, you know, it's almost like a works righteous end of things. And I think that we need to be careful so that that pendulum is kind of in the center. And that's one reason why I think it's important to understand this new covenant concept. And we're going to explain that here. Jeremiah 31, what better way to go look at this than to look at the very thing that he is quoting when saying it. He's quoting Jeremiah 31. There's going to be a new covenant. It says, set up signposts, make landmarks, set your heart toward the highway, the way in which you went. Turn back, O virgin of Israel. 
Turn back to these your cities. How long will you gad about? I wonder if that's supposed to be go about. I don't know. O you backsliding daughter, for the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. And what is this new thing? A brand new thing. Woman shall encompass a man. Notice it's not plural, women. It's a woman is going to encompass a man. This is the new thing that God was going to bring. What is that? Well, the word new here in the Hebrew literally means basically unheard of, like never heard of before. So, historically, the recipients are the children of Israel who knew the, the order of man and woman in regards to the creation of, you know, all, all things in the Bible. They, they understood that the children of Israel is this woman. Okay, so when I say... I'm going to, a woman shall encompass a man. They're understanding that this goes back all the way to creation and that this woman is Israel. That's just the way they see it, and I agree with it. So, this is going to create some shock to the readers here. What, what does this mean? Who is this woman? Well, it's the virgin Israel. If the woman is Israel, who's the man? that this woman is going to encompass a man. Well, let's go look, because we're seeing this in the New Testament as well. Revelation 12, 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Remember Joseph's dream? The sun, moon, and stars bowed down before him. The Bible tells us that that was, you know, the stars were his brothers. Right? And his parents then. So we're seeing that this is Israel. Then being with child. Israel has a child. She cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in the heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail threw a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. I think you know who the man is now, right? Yeshua. Now, this fits with what Romans says. Romans chapter 4 says, What advantage is there in being a Jew? He says, Much in every way, for theirs are the patriarchs. Theirs are the promises. Theirs are the covenants. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. See, even Romans is saying, from Israel comes Yeshua. So, here we see now in Revelation, and this woman is giving birth to Yeshua, and when that happens, what happens to the devil? He's enraged. And so this fiery red dragon... He takes and he draws a third of the stars of heaven and throws them down to the earth. Now, by the way, we're going to talk about this um, 
I think somewhere I posted my spiritual warfare part two. And I'll go into this in more detail. I've skipped it to save time tonight because it's a different presentation, but note the timing of when these angels are basically cast out of heaven. Is this before Jesus is born or after? After. And there is ample amount of scripture that is going to show you because I've always been under the impression that they, this happened at creation. But this isn't the only scripture verse that's going to support that this is after Christ comes that these angels are cast to the earth. But doesn't this say it happened before? Uh, it where are you looking here? Well, yes, um... Yes and no. I, I, let me, may I did word that wrong, so I'm glad you caught that. I'm not going to say after Christ, but I'm going to say New Testament period. I mean, it seems like it's happening like at the same time, just as this reads. Yeah. Certainly yeah. Close. What I might do is it might be worth showing you a couple of scriptures here too, but I'll wait a couple more verses. Matthew 2.16 then Herod, this is going to fit what we're reading in Revelation. Just This is going to help you understand what Revelation is talking about. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem, and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. Okay, so... The New Testament is telling us what Jeremiah was writing about is now being fulfilled in this beginning of the New Testament. So that's a big deal because this is what Jeremiah was saying. That a woman shall encompass a man. And talking about a new covenant coming about, this in verse 17, is pointing us to that. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. In that same Jeremiah passage, you keep reading, and this is what we see. So, the exact same chapter of Jeremiah 31, referring to a woman encompassing a man. Now, Let's go back to Revelation in chapter 12, verse 5. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up to God. He ascended into heaven and his throne. He sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, Israel, where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days, which is three and a half years. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Where are they fighting? 
in heaven. Wait a minute, I thought Satan has been cast out of heaven. Or maybe not yet. Okay, like I said, and this isn't all of the verses that are going to allude to this. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast, where? To the earth. And his angels were cast out with him. Just like we saw before, the tail takes it down. When? It's around the time of Christ. This is what we're seeing here. A male child is born. There are angels. The heavenly realms, the spiritual warfare going on is like DEFCOM, whatever is the worst one. <laughs> <laughs> I know whatever it's one yeah. five. <laughs> so that's what's going on here. Five, right? I guess I'm, I'm looking to my... Okay. It's one. One is the most serious one. It goes is five, it? Four, three, two, is it one, one. or Five. He's saying five. I'm. He was in the. So. Anyway, I am going to just maybe give you a couple of verses here. Let me just. Uh, there's so much that I'd like to share with you. I will unskip some of these. Well, also back in Job and all those places, God and Satan are talking together. Exactly. That's more of the support of it. Um, Yeah, it's DEFCON 1? Yeah, that's good. Okay. That's what Wikipedia says. Okay. DEFCON 1. Okay. <laughs> Revelation 12, 12 goes on and it says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Okay. Why are they rejoicing? Satan has been cast out of the heavens. And then what does it say? Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you. Guys, this when Christ came, not only was it the greatest thing for us, but it also meant that there was going to be a spiritual battle that was going to be greater than has ever been fought. And we've been going through our life thinking, oh, this is no big deal. No, maybe we should be engaging in a spiritual battle. He says, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because the devil has come down to you. And he's not looking for peace. It says he's having great wrath because he knows that his time is short. His time being cast down is indeed short. And what's he do? The dragon was enraged with the woman, hates the Jew. Gee, is it any wonder that we've had like the Holocaust, you know, the pogroms, the blood libels? Any wonder that the Muslims hate the Jews and they say that, you know, their Mahdi can't come back till the last Jew is wiped off of the face of the earth? And went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. Well, who are the rest of her offspring? That's us, folks. The devil is going to be after you. Is it any wonder that Christianity is what's under attack so much? Any wonder that, by the way, the Muslims want to kill Jews and what they call the people of the book? 
that's you folks. Because the devil is enraged and he wants to destroy you. And I believe that in end times, the Islamic era, is, is, uh, that's going to be a big part of it. Okay, I think there's a reason that all the beheadings take place. You can go and watch my DVD on Islam and the Antichrist. Okay. BLM is also very unapologetically anti Yep, BLM definitely is. Yep. And against Christians, too, really. Yeah. I mean, ultimately. It's everywhere. <laughs> but notice as well where it goes on. Who are the rest of her offspring? Not only do I want to identify them as you, but I want to identify what the Bible calls as those offspring. Oh, those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Oh, you mean it's not those who just confess Jesus and hold hands, sing kumbaya? We're in the New Testament here, and it's talking about keeping commandments. No, our church culture today, that's taboo. It's taboo to say that we should be the ones that are keeping the commandments of God. But this is what it's saying. The devil is going after the rest of her offspring, and now it identifies who those people are. They are those who obey God's word and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Guys, you cannot separate those two. If you are holding to the testimony of Jesus, you will be obeying the commandments of God. That's how it works. Faith without works is dead. A tree will be judged by its fruit. If a tree does not produce good fruit, it's to be cut down. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on. And these are all New Testament verses. So, anyway, I could give you more, but I think we're going to stop. I'll give you this one. John 1, 6, or Job, I mean. Job 1, 6, remember, if Satan had been cast out of heaven, what's he doing being able to go to heaven? You see, Satan in the Old Testament hadn't been cast down to the earth yet. According to Revelation, according to what we see in the New Testament, it doesn't happen until Jesus comes. And that's when heaven rejoices and woe to the earth because Satan's coming after you folks. And that's why we need to be in prayer and in the word and not thinking that we're just going to stroll through life without any trouble, any spiritual battles. So but, then, go ahead. How, did, how does this work into the, the, what we would consider demons at any point in time, I guess, pre or post uh, Christ coming to the earth? How does that work into like the, uh, the sons of, sons of God? Sons of God kind of, Man, like, yeah. Were, were they basically just marked for getting shocked, and then it just happened when Jesus was born? Or did they, clearly, there are other spiritual entities at that point yep. that are evil. Yep. Demons are different than. It seems that the sons of God, when they in Genesis six four, the sons of God married the daughters of men, and giants roamed the earth. Those Nephilim, those were half breeds. They were angels and human, a mixing of seed. Sure that the Bible says is not supposed to take place. And those became what we would call demons, evil spirits. Well, and, and up 
minutes ago, I would assume would have assumed those were angels that had already fallen from heaven, but you're telling me. Yep, they're separate. Not necessarily would have taken place. Yep, the fallen angels are different. You've got half-breeds, the Nephilim. Those are demons and evil spirits. And in the book of Enoch, by the way, it talks about them and what they do is they go after men. They go, they, they try to destroy men. Sure, but I, I guess I'm more referring to the, those, the sons of God specifically, the angels. Those were angels. Yep. And, Have access to and fro. Right. Just like here in Job. Yep. Until... Jesus comes. And why is that? Because the beginning of the end is when Yeshua comes. The Lord brings salvation. And that's why the devil is so enraged, because he knows his time is short. And so he's going to go after you. But notice that that started 2,000 years ago. So do you think, do you think this was all a surprise to Satan then? The... the Secrets of events that led to him being cast out? I don't know. Yeah. It's a good question, but I don't know. Yeah, I'm not assuming he would. It's just yeah. <laughs> What's the what was the devil thinking? Well, because you, you know, you, you, it's hard not to look at the devil as certainly not omnipotent, but certainly knowing of much, not all knowing. And it's like, well, if he always knew he was going to fail, sort of thing, like, yeah, he can read the book, right? What's the point? Yeah, like, I'm pretty sure he's read it more times than I have. Um, but when you look at it this way, and it's kind of like, it was kind of like an old crap moment from where he's <laughs> sitting. Because he probably thought, yeah, I'm going to do my own thing. It's going to be good for the rest of all eternity. And then God's like, nope. Oh, snap. <laughs> so is there anything else to call fallen angels besides fallen angels? They're not demons. I think, a, yeah, a fallen angel is not a demon or an evil spirit. A fallen angel is a fallen angel, and there is a difference between the two. Is it different? Can they be redeemed? No. No. None of these people are going to be redeemed. But I think a fallen angel, maybe you could, but what I see Scripture saying is demonic spirits and those kind of things are the result of these half-breed. And, I mean, they're... But think about all the, the spirits. Revelation 5 seems to suggest that there are over 100 million angels. Okay, take a third of those that the devil's tail swept down to earth. A third of those. That's a lot of demonic spirits out there. No wonder this world's in such a mess. Especially when you don't recognize the battle we're in. And they don't have any hope because they, turned, they knew God face to face. Yeah. Yeah, they have no hope. So you're, you're, you're conjecturing that demons and fallen angels are not, in fact, the same thing? I think they're different. Demons, I believe, are the result of the uh, unholy union. Okay. And fallen angels are just that. The angels who are cast down to the earth. So they'd be more like principalities. Good point. Uh, you know, we do not battle with flesh and blood, but with principalities. The yeah, in the heavenly realms. So what's the principality? I don't know. So I don't know all the differences. So when a person is demon possessed, like that's say by the entity Legion, you're saying you think Legion was a collection of 
for lack of a they better can't way of saying it, this, a deceased Nephilim spirit or group of spirits? Outside of that word deceased, yeah. Right. Yeah. Deceased as in physical body gone. Yes. Yep, and they seek a place. They, you know, Jesus talks about that a house being swept clean, and they go and they look for a, a host. Ultimately, so I've never, I've never really thought of that. In my mind, it's always been God, people, angels, demons or bad angels, demons. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I just this last year have come to understand it this way myself. So, but let me show you some more support of this. John 12, 27, New Testament stuff. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Continuing on in verse 30. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. This is New so Testament. Now? I know, I know. Okay. So. I think scripture is clear about it. I, I, Again, this is what I'm talking about, church culture. Guys, we believe so many things because it's just what we've been taught and we, what we think, but we're not getting it from scripture. We're getting it from our, our growing up. Okay, It continues in John chapter 14, verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world has been here, is coming, and he has nothing in me, but the world. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. So the generation of Jesus is when he's warn, he warns us that the devil's coming. So maybe that's the time period to put it. Exactly, I can't, you know, at his birth, what, but the generation of Jesus. Well, he was there when, in the wilderness and tempting him. Yeah. Yeah, can, that's right. Can, yeah. So, but he can go back and forth. But now he has cast down, and he's ticked about it. He no longer has access into heaven, which is why heaven rejoices. But woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Okay? And he has yet to be cast down one more time, finally permanently. Exactly. Yep. So, there are pictures of this. Why not? Why not? Genesis 8, 6. So it came to pass at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made. I love this connection to creation. Everything goes back to creation. Why is this detail included in Scripture? Why do we need to know that? Okay, obviously because there's some deep spiritual meaning, something that's there that's important. Okay, the ark is a picture of heaven. Uh, most the theologians would agree with that. The door is a picture of Yeshua. The only way to get into the ark is through the door. One entrance, one way. I am the door. This is why when he says, you know, the scriptures record in Genesis, he doesn't say go into the ark. He says, come into the ark, showing that Yeshua, God, was in the ark. Come in the ark, okay? So he invites us in. Now, 
Verse 7, he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro. Now those are interesting words. Do you remember Job? I kind of, I didn't really read it, but Job, God asked Satan, where have you been? Going to and fro on the earth. Throughout scripture, ravens are pictures of demonic beings or, or evil. In Revelation, we see it. He calls them to come and gorge on the flesh and so on. We see in the New Testament the parables that the, the seed, the sower, he sows seeds and these birds come. And when Jesus explains what those are, he says, it's the enemy. Satan steals those seeds. Okay? So anyway, yeah. Don't know. It's an unclean bird. Don't know. I know. I don't have all the answers. Sorry. I have, I've thought about that because to me it just surprised me that it was an unclean bird that would come to feed him. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm sure there's a reason for it, especially since it's an unclean thing. If somebody knows, let me know. But I, I haven't found my answer to that yet myself. But anyway, so then he sends out a raven, which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. So, like I said, ravens are unclean. Just like Satan in Job, he's going to and fro. But after that, a clean bird is sent out. A, a bird that is a picture of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Is the wording there relevant where it says he sent out the raven versus out from himself a dove? Was that a reading too much into that? I don't know. Not sure on that one. Take pride in something. Yeah. Verse 9. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, so she returned into the ark to him. For the waters here were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and he took her and drew her into the ark to himself. This You're not going to get the full picture of this without me showing you something in the book of Enoch um, where this clean finds no rest. And here we see this clean bird is finding no rest. Um, just like Jesus, Yeshua had no place to lay his head, you might say. Um, the first time this dove is sent out, it finds no rest. Just like the first time Yeshua comes, he finds no rest. But then... It says that basically he's sent out again. And what happens, well, first of all, I guess before I go sent out again, he finds no rest. What happens when he finds no rest? He comes back to Noah, to the Father. Just like Yeshua goes out, finds no rest, goes back to his Father. Verse 10, and he waited yet another seven days, and again, he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth, and no one knew that the waters had receded from the earth. Seven days, again, symbolically, it's a picture of completion. An olive leaf is throughout Scripture a picture of Israel. So what happens when the dove is sent out a second time? What does he bring back with him? Israel. What's Romans tell us? 
Israel's going to be gathered again. Right? And so this is the picture that we're seeing. Okay? The other thing that's kind of cool is that the dove was concealed, hidden, until it was come out there. Okay, likewise, Israel, he conceals us until the wrath will pass. We will be protected in some ways. I know there's going to be Christian persecution. I know people are going to die, but I also know the Bible says he's protecting people. He seals, you know, 12,000 from each of the tribes. I don't understand all of that. I don't need to. All I need to know is that I trust Jesus and his protection. That's all I need to know. That he will be there for me. How? I don't know. I don't care. I just believe. But the new Jerusalem, kind of the heaven that comes down to earth, when that happens, there is never going to be any division, sorrow, or any of that ever again. Um, anyway, I, I better just kind of move on and call that good. But My brain can only explode Okay, well... <laughs> one, one quick last question on the... On yeah. The do, do we see any example of those fallen angels having interaction with people today or, or at any point? Or is it all the demonic activity? I don't know. I, I can only think of one scripture to give you, and that's where Hebrews says to be careful in entertaining strangers because in so doing, some have entertained strangers without know, or angels without knowing it. So at least on the good end, that there are definitely good angels. You see, you got to remember that the purpose of angels was that they were created to be ministers to the heirs of salvation, it says in Scripture. So in the book of Enoch, we see that these fallen angels, they knew that there was no redemption for them. And so they went to Enoch and say, go and intercede for us and see if God will forgive us of this evil deed that we've done. And God basically tells Enoch, he says, you go tell them, you were created to be ministers to them, not them to you. And they're, they're rejected, ultimately. So their evil thing that they did was to reject God, I guess. Well, it was in disobeying God, they came down and they oh, basically slept the with women. Oh, the, mm -hmm. the fathers of the Nephilim. Yep. So now what these third are, I don't know. I don't understand everything that goes on in the, in the heavenly realms. I just know what Scripture's telling me, and I'm going to take that, and maybe someday we'll understand it better. But, but there's a timeline here that is different than what I was always thinking growing up. That's what I see Scripture telling me very clearly. So anyway, let's get back to Revelation 12 here. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now... Okay, now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our day or our God day and night has been cast down. Here again, the timing. Now. And it goes on in verse 11. And they, who's the they? The women, the woman, Israel, and her offspring, overcame him the devil, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word 
of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. I don't really know if I really care how that's worded, but basically they, they didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from death, is what it's saying. That kind of what I was saying about before, with all the stuff that's coming upon our country, guys, rejoice. Think about what's coming. Don't think about the death. Don't think about those things, but think about the blood of the Lamb and the testimony so that you don't shrink from that. That that doesn't even scare you. That's what this is saying. So, um, this is what Yeshua came to do. He came to destroy the power of death, which is why a new covenant is so important. So now we're seeing the man is the devil, the woman overcomes her by her offspring. That offspring, her child, is Yeshua. Isaiah 14, verse 16, Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? who would not let his captives go free? This is all in reference to Satan when he is cast down. And I've always kind of looked that at maybe the end, and maybe there's a little of both there. But in Isaiah 14, it, it's, it's prophetically talking about the king of Tyre, and it's like this, the devil will be cast down. And it's like, is this the man? who shook the earth, who made kingdoms tremble? Is this a guy? So you can go read Isaiah 14 and, and get some more connections there, but we better keep moving. Um, verse 12 again, or chapter 12 of Revelation, verse 11. Uh, we, we looked at that, but I want to connect it here to Jeremiah 31, the text that we've been looking at that's talking about this new covenant. For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. Woman shall encompass a man. When you read that now, now you need to kind of connect that to Revelation 12, to the New Testament, the gospel of Yeshua coming. And this is what it's talking about. Israel will overcome the devil through this man. That's the, the whole point. Can you see why this is new? That hadn't happened that had not happened in the Old Testament. This is brand new when Yeshua came. Isaiah 43, 19, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen now, look at this. What we're seeing here are a lot of comparisons of really weird things. A road in the wilderness. That's unnatural. A river in a desert. It's unnatural. Jackals and ostriches. That's kind of strange as well because those are unclean things. But it says that the jackals and the ostriches, these unclean things, are going to do what? Honor him. Why? 
Well, it's answered, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. What is unnatural, I'm going to make natural to give drink to my people, my chosen. What this is, if you go and look at this, this is a pro another prophetic picture that the Gentiles were going to come in and they were going to become spiritual Jews. The Gentiles are welcomed in. These unclean people are going to come and honor God. Because, why? Because God gives water. God makes the natural, or the unnatural, natural. And what's the point of it? To give drink to my people, my chosen. Romans talks about this very thing that the Gentiles are welcomed in. So it basically goes on, so all men are handed over to disobedience in order that he may have mercy on them all. That we, coming into the church, in part is to bring more of Israel into the church. You can go look at that in Romans. Isaiah 42 continues, verse 9, Behold, the former things have come to pass. The new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So again, the prophets, this isn't a new thing. He's not pulling this out of the blue. He's saying, look, the prophets are warning us that there was a new thing coming long before. So when I'm telling you that there's a new mediator, okay, that the old, the first is passing away, you should know this. So with that backdrop, let's go back to Hebrews, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Note, he is not making a new law. Note, he does not get rid of the law. He simply changes its location. Under the new covenant, he has taken that law that was written on stone and he has put it in our minds and hearts, or you might say our spirits. Remember what I told you to underline that word before about the law and the flesh? Because he condemned, the law was weak in the flesh. But in the spirit, it's strong. Okay? And this is what's new. Is the... I, I keep saying the same words and I want to kind of come up with a different way of explaining it. Maybe I, I think I had something in my notes here that maybe will... Help, but the bottom line is, is what's new isn't the law, but the location of it and the ability to keep it. In the Old Testament, in the flesh, it was so weak, there was no way you could do it. But now, with the Spirit, we can do all things through Christ. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to. I'm sure you're going to fail still. But there's now no condemnation when we fail. And, even more importantly, I don't have to keep it to be saved And what I mean by that is, it's not my responsibility to earn my salvation to be saved. I am saved, and therefore, I keep it.
We have talked about this over and over again, the pattern that we see in the Exodus. God saved Israel, then he gave them the law. It's the same pattern for us. He saved us on the cross, then he gave us the law, but not on stone, in our hearts. So that we will obey it that way. And this is basically, he's, he's taking you, he's quoting the Tanakh again. Again, there, this is not something that wasn't foretold. Ezekiel says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. There's a new temple, remember? I'm going to put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So when God brings this new covenant that Hebrews is talking about, that the church is all about talking about, what goes along with it? What's one of the purposes of putting his spirit in you? And cause you to walk in my statutes. Cause you to obey. So all of these people are saying, you don't need to obey. You don't need to obey. Maybe you ought to go look what the new covenant is really all about. And it says, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. That's what he is quoting here. Talking about the new covenant. Hebrews 8.10 and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He's quoting Ezekiel talking about this. So if you really want to understand the new covenant in a New Testament era, how it was intended to be, go look at Ezekiel and he's telling you that part of that is that you better be obeying his statutes, his commands, and walking after him. And by the way, that's not just in Ezekiel, it's in the New Testament too. And we do it because of the Spirit, not because of the flesh, not because of a have to, but because of a desire that He's placed in us. That's the difference. Those three verses are just a perfect tagline for Christianity. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Hebrews 8.11, None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? Because all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. How do you know? Not because it was written on stone, but because he puts it in your heart. Now, here's what I love. For all shall know me. He's still quoting Jeremiah here in Hebrews, verse 11. What does it mean that they shall all know me? Well, John answers that. Now, by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments. So, people, if you really want to know if you know God, the Bible tells you. And so those people who are coming to church and they're living a life filled with sin, unrepentant sin, they don't know Jesus. 
The scriptures are clear about this. And I hope you can see the consistency here in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Hebrews, in John. Old and new. There isn't this thing that's gone away by an old obsolete. It is new, but the law is still there. Here is an analogy that I came up with. It's a lame one, but it's the best I could do. A potter. They can make a vase out of this clay. Now, they can destroy it. It's, it's gone, but out of that same clay, they can now make a bowl. Now, that's a brand new thing. It's a new bowl made out of the same stuff. God's law still is effective, but it has been changed into something brand new, something that's in our spirit, something that no longer condemns, that kills, no longer has poison for me because Yeshua did it for me. So that's the best I could do with my poor analogy, but I'm sure there's better ones out there. Verse 12 goes on, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Boy, isn't that a gift? I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. That's new. That's really new. Because in the Old Testament, remember what he was saying? Year after year, the priests had to go do this. Every time. Even day after day. Now, no more. That's new. In that, he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Not the law, but that vase. It's obsolete. But out of the same stuff, he made something new. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So, Remember, at this time, that, that temple was still functioning. And so this is what he's saying. It's ready to vanish away. And in a few years, it will be gone. The Romans will come in in 70 AD and destroy it. And it has never been rebuilt since, even though they've tried. So to be clear on your analogy, the law is the clay, the old covenant is the base, the first base that is broken, and the new covenant is the Yep, but all made out of the law. Yep, yep. Luke 1, 5, we're getting real close here. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judah, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. The reason I'm bringing this up is I want to show you Aaron, or not Aaron, but uh, John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a direct descendant from the priestly line of Aaron on both mom's side and dad's side. He is an embodiment of the Aaronic priesthood. Okay, both mommy and daddy from that line. Well, John 3.26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, this is John the Baptist, 
He who was with you beyond the Jordan, speaking of Yeshua, to whom you have been testified, or who you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy is mine, or this joy of mine is fulfilled. So, in other words, here's this great Aaronic priest welcoming Yeshua, and now he's going to say this. He must increase, but I must decrease. I think this was also a good symbolic picture of the priesthood. John the Baptist, a priest of priests that he could have been, is saying, I must decrease. He, the new priest, the new mediator, he's got to increase. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. Just like the earthly tabernacle isn't anything compared to the one that is above. He who comes from heaven is above all. So he's pointing, I think, not just to him as a person, but his role must decrease. So when did baptizing start? That's probably a good question. Start? Yeah. That is a good question. They, like why I, was John the Baptist baptizing? That wasn't what Jews did. They baptized, even in the Old Testament, they did mikvahs wash themselves. Yeah, and that's what it was, but I don't know if that starts just from the Levitical things. Do you guys know any of that? I, I can't think of it happening before Leviticus the, the or not. No, that's different. Yeah. I mean, Yep. If you see some type of baptism in the New Testament, you'll find something. I mean, John the Baptist is before Jesus. Yeah. So, yeah, that's why I like why so would, why would that's taken from concepts in the Torah and the law. So they just yeah. have used that as ritualistically cleansing. I mean, what did it really do to them when John the Baptist did that? It didn't make them somehow more supernaturally holy. It was, a, it was symbolic of what they were doing. Even the crossing of the Red Sea before Leviticus. 1 Corinthians 10 says they were all, you know, went through the Red Sea. They were all baptized in the sea. And so it was a concept. When it first came about, I, I don't know, but I mean, but, that's... I mean, it seems to be a more, I mean, a bigger thing after Jesus. Like, yeah. I mean, you know, but... Because they were being baptized at that point, you know, under the permission of Messiah. You were to go out in the name of Messiah and baptize him. He is Messiah. And that's kind of a big thing. And so this was like a, a cleansing of repentance, but in the name of Messiah going out to all the world. Of course, that's why the, the great giving of, of the Holy of the Spirit at that time too. And it's a pretty major thing to go out yeah. to all the world, the giving of the Holy Spirit at that time. So it was a, a major thing. So there was cleansing and the, John the Baptist and cleansing was done before. This was in the name of Messiah. And this is a big deal. Spreading, spreading the, the gospel message. Yeah. 
Not even here. Matter of fact, as a man, well, but it says that it says that he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Later on in John, it says Jesus himself had not baptized; his disciples had been baptizing. So the people coming and saying that weren't correct. But it goes on to say that Jesus was not doing the baptizing, so he never baptized anybody that I'm aware of. It was really a started as a ritual cleansing. Yeah. And, and, and was a sign of repentance. Right, right. But now it's more... Which, which, which John the Baptist was a, was a baptism of repentance as well. Yeah. But this is a baptism of repentance in the name of Messiah. Right. And I think that there is a misconception within baptism even today with that, a baptism of the Spirit and John's baptism. That there's not that distinction made. But Hebrews 6 talks about baptisms being part of the elementary truths. So we, we talked about that, I think, before. Um, I want to show you uh, the, the Talmud here, um, the Babylonian Talmud, and what it says in regards to some things going on here. Um, this is, uh, as you read this, I want you to understand, these guys were not kind to Yeshua. They, they weren't real receptive to him, right? He says this, Our rabbis taught during the last 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the lot, the casting of lots on the Day of Atonement for the Lord, did not come up in the right hand, nor did the crimson colored strap become white, nor did the westernmost light shine, and the doors of the heckel would open by themselves. And what that is, these doors are huge. It took many people to open them. And these were opening up by themselves. So here we have Jewish history telling us that the last 40 years before the destruction of Jerusalem, which was 70 AD, 40 years prior to that puts you at about 30 AD. Right? So this is the time that Jesus, Yeshua, is being crucified. From that time the lot that you cast on the Day of Atonement for the, the sacrificial goat or the scapegoat, it, it did not come up in the, in the right hand anymore, which was it always did. Then, remember, they would tie a red strap and hang it in the temple, and it would miraculously turn white. It never did that anymore. So these miracles stopped. And I, I think that we, we kind of I alluded to this earlier before we started about these bad omens. At this time, some Jews were seeing this as a bad omen. Other Jews were seeing this as a good thing, a good omen. Again, that you know, good prophet, false prophet kind of thing. <coughs> um, As I said, we are. I'm kind of setting you up here for the next couple of weeks. We are going to be talking about this new temple, this third, third temple that the Temple Institute is all about building. And I, I think it's going to be a shock to some of you. I think it's going to be a more mind-blowing stuff that we're going to be looking at when we do. Um, 
So I'm not going to give away too many secrets about that right now. But as I said before, before judgment comes, God allows a lot of false prophets to rise up as well. But he is going to give signs. And I think we're, we're seeing some of those signs. You're going to see some of them as we study this third temple of some things that are going on in Jerusalem. And uh, we're seeing a rise of false prophets. So I'm going to close with this verse right here. The woman said to him, John 4, verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for we, or, or I'm sorry, for salvation is of the Jews. Don't you forget that. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Does that mean a little bit more after talking what we've talked about here today? How the law has been put in our spirit? The truth, what is the truth? The truth is the word. And we can see in the Old Testament many times the law being equated with truth. Okay, so to a Jew, this would have made no sense. But once you start understanding Hebrews, it starts to make a little bit more sense. That there is something new that was coming. And this is going to unfold even more as we look into this third temple. But uh, I'm going to leave you with that to ponder and think about. And uh, with that, we can close in prayer. So, Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. And thank you for making all things new. Lord, um, I know that we are living in some, some strange times now. But... I just pray that it would cause us to seek you and chase after you, to praise you and to rejoice in what your promises are more than we ever have. That we would realize that we are in a spiritual battle. That Satan is enraged and he hates this. He hates that we're meeting. He hates that we want to praise you. And he hates that we can understand truth. And most of all, he hates that we'll obey you. Because that's, how, that's a form of worship. And he wants our worship. So, Lord, just empower us and let us see truth. Give us a discerning spirit to recognize all the false prophets and all the, the lies that are going out in our society that we may stand firm on truth, and that truth would be what sets us free. It's in that truth that we find our comfort, our peace, and a reason to rejoice and praise, even though things may fall apart all around us. So, Lord, we look to you for all of those things in Yeshua's name. Amen.